Welcome to Addiction in the Family, Episode 50, Eating Disorders and Addiction. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addictions have affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction is spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Ariaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Center. And I'm the author of the books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, and the new children's book, Mommy's Getting Sober. My wife, Kira, and I were in our addictions for over 10 years together in a shared recovery for over twice that long. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, we look at eating disorders and how they have a lot more in common than most people realize with more generally recognized addictive behaviors like chemical use, to the point that an increasing number of professionals think about eating disorders as a type of addiction. We'll hear from one such practitioner, Dr. Heather Ingram, as part of this episode. We'll also look at some of the basics of eating disorders, similarities and differences between these eating disorders and more commonly understood addictions, and most importantly, where you can go for help, both for the person with the eating disorder and for those who love them. All this and more after a word from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. I'd also like to let you know that Windmill Wellness Ranch now has a free course available to any family or friends of anybody with any addiction. The course is available at windmillfamilycourse.com. Once you go and sign up for free, you'll get a weekly email pointing you towards blog posts, videos, and podcast episodes that help carry a message of hope. Sign up today at windmillfamilycourse.com. Welcome back. All right, so we're looking today at eating disorders and addiction. Now, that might seem like a funny subject for a podcast called Addiction and the Family, but the reality is is that increasingly researchers are starting to look at eating disorders as being a possibly a form of addiction. Now, this has to do partly with the idea that food addiction is increasingly being understood as being a real thing, not just a euphemism or something that somebody prints on a funny t-shirt, but that it actually people can be addicted to food. And this has to do with brain research, brain scans, looking at how people react, looking at whether or not people go into withdrawals, looking at whether or not people struggle. And when we say withdrawals in this case, we're not talking about, I'm hungry. We're talking about these psychological withdrawals that can happen, which is a neurological process when somebody is not being able to use food as a means of escape. So as you might imagine, 
Most researchers are looking more at binge eating as a type of eating disorder or bulimic activity where somebody binges and then purges and seeing greater parallels with more commonly understood addictions. That being said, some researchers and practitioners in the field also look at the behaviors around anorexia and see a strong parallel to addiction or possibly a form of addiction itself. We're going to hear from somebody today who is an expert on eating disorders and also on working with people around addiction. And that's Dr. Heather Ingram, who is the founder and CEO of In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Center, which has several locations here in Texas. We'll be introducing her in just a moment. And she and I actually ran a family workshop for quite a while out here in Texas when we both had first moved to the area. So it's a pleasure to have her back on the show. She'll be talking about various questions around the parallels, but also looking and seeing what can family members do if they think they're seeing this behavior or if they're seeing both behaviors, both a more obvious or should we say maybe traditional addiction like chemical dependency and seeing eating disorders happening at the same time or maybe seeing one go down and the other one go up as some family members unfortunately see in a loved one or as some people see within themselves. We'll hear all about that in just a minute. But first we want to talk a little bit about some of the controversy around this idea because of course everybody is not 100% on board yet. Now part of the reason for this is scientific. It's simply that a lot of researchers would say this is what we're seeing but the jury's still out because there's not enough evidence and that's worth looking at. So when we see a promising new line of evidence that doesn't mean that something's true but it does mean this is a good direction to look in. But the other reason is maybe a little more philosophical and that has to do with the way eating disorder treatment and addiction treatment have both developed independently. In fact, I really don't know of any treatment centers right now that definitely treat both at the same time. Usually if you're at a chemical dependency center and somebody is struggling with an active eating disorder, they're going to say, let's refer you out, have you stabilized that eating disorder, and then why don't you come back to us and we'll finish treatment for your chemical dependency. Similarly, an eating disorder treatment center will typically say, hey, you know what? You seem to be struggling with some chemical dependency. Why don't you go get that stabilized and then come back to us and we'll finish this part of the treatment. It's not really saying one is more important, but just if there's an active disorder behavior going on, it's going to be hard to treat one if the other one is raging out of control. But remember I said it's partly philosophical? That's because a lot of people in eating disorder treatment don't think of their patients as having an addiction. That is to say, they don't think that the eating disorder itself is a form of addiction. And so they can treat it very differently. They may use different tools, different mindset, different approach. Some may even be actively resistant to the idea that these are really parallel processes, despite the fact that we can see a lot of similar behaviors around it. The most obvious of which is that both traditionally understood addictions and eating disorders involve a lot of compulsive behavior. But on top of that, Often the person who is doing the behavior starts to feel guilt or shame around what they're doing, although this may come through as adamant denial and self-justification, but increasingly they become also invested in it. It may even become part of their identity, but that's not where the similarity ends. You might see a lot of lying, a lot of hiding. You might see a lot of denial, pushback, even anger if it's challenged. And that is likely because whether it's a more traditionally understood addiction or an eating disorder, chances are that person is using it to try and cope with emotional things. And their brain process deep in the limbic system is also going to get very used to using that emotional shortcut. And so if you start to threaten that emotional shortcut, people themselves may start to feel very threatened and push back. 
And that is why some of our loved ones will get into that behavior that we understand around more traditional addictions. And also we start to recognize, hey, this is also happening around eating disorders. But there's a lot of people that don't like to look at it that way simply because they're invested in the way they're used to treating things. Doesn't mean they're bad or even that they're wrong. As Dr. Ingram's going to explain, we'll actually find that there's not one sort of treatment that works for everybody. And this applies to a lot of conditions. But it can be helpful increasingly to recognize that maybe we really are looking at not just parallel processes, but maybe some versions of the same thing. So this is probably a good time to bring Dr. Ingram in, and I'll welcome her back to the show. Thank you for having me again. So can you give us just a little snapshot of your view and your experience with both eating disorders and addiction? I think they go hand in hand, eating disorders and other addictive behaviors. My experience with eating disorders started, wow, it's been over 10 years at this point. Many moons ago, it feels. I worked on the East Coast with clients who struggle with eating disorders at Walden Behavioral Care. And I worked in all different levels of treatment from inpatient to partial hospitalization to intensive outpatient. And when I moved to Texas, I started working at a residential substance abuse treatment center where, wouldn't you know it, I started seeing a lot of people who I would have seen similarly in the uh, eating disorder recovery centers. And what I realized was, I think what was pretty evident to me uh, was these um, different addictive behaviors oftentimes go hand in hand. And what I mean by that is what I saw happen a lot for the clients that I worked with who had a history of eating disorders, for instance, is when their alcohol or drug addiction would um, get in check, so they uh, were experiencing some sobriety and recovery in that area, I oftentimes noticed that then other forms of addictive behavior would fill the void, so to speak, including eating disorder behavior, if that existed for them. And I continue to see that in an outpatient setting clients who have eating disorders, I also screen for other forms of addictive behavior and vice versa. And oftentimes I see both in clients with addictive behavior, either eating disorder or uh, alcohol or drug addiction, or even other forms of addictive behavior like gambling or sex or love addiction. And I'm really glad to hear those other forms of addiction acknowledged because that plays into one of the central themes that we're looking at here today, which is simply that there are a lot of addictive behaviors, sometimes known as process addictions, that are still a little bit out there for the average person. Like many people can understand being addicted to alcohol or some other drug like heroin or methamphetamine or THC, but they may not think of some of these behaviors as being true addictions. In the same way, even some professionals and researchers question some of these things because it's just less known, but also because the brain processes involve something that is a natural, normal part of life. And that's a big thing to look at around eating disorders, is that everybody eats. While most people will never try heroin or methamphetamine or something like that, many will drink alcohol but won't find it going out of control. And so when we think of an eating disorder, we're talking about a natural process that goes out of control, not something that's an abnormal process that a lot of people would never even try. 
So because people are not as familiar with eating disorders in general compared to other addictions, I want to talk just a little bit about each of the three major eating disorders. And these are binge eating disorder, bulimia nervosa, and anorexia nervosa. Of the three, binge eating disorder is by far the most prevalent. It's about three to four times more prevalent than the other two. Overall, on average, it strikes about 1.2% of American adults. But that can actually be a little bit deceptive because it's actually twice as prevalent in females as males. So males kind of push the percentage down, females up. The reality is it's about 1.6% of women and about 0.8% of men. So about twice as many women as men. Now, why that is exactly? Hard to say. Some might argue that one of the reasons is societal pressure. You can pick up some major women's publications and find that they're about 50-50 split between diet tips and recipes that will be delicious for the whole family, most of which are not actually that healthy for you. You could also make an argument for genetics, though. For instance, some people have more taste buds than others. That's right. Some people may be more sensitive to food, to taste, and to thus find satisfaction in it. And of the people that are designated as super tasters, the ones with the highest density of taste buds in their tongues, that's right, most of them are women. So having said all that, what exactly is a binge eating disorder? After all, many of us have eaten too much at one point or another, and that doesn't necessarily mean that we have an addiction or a disease. Well, the difference with a binge eating disorder is that the person who experiences it does this over and over again. It starts to feel compulsive. They may often feel guilt and shame, really bad about how their eating is going, and yet they don't feel like they can stop. And unlike the other two major eating disorders, the person is not specifically trying to lose weight, or at least their behavior is not pointing towards that. So often they are overweight or even obese, and our society does not treat such people very well, does not look kindly on people who are overweight unless they're actively trying to change that. So as a result, there may be additional layers of emotional distress around all of this. Now, the next eating disorder on our list is bulimia nervosa, often just called bulimia. And that one has a lot in common with binge eating disorder in that there are episodes of binge eating, compulsivity, feeling bad about it. But the major difference is that with bulimia nervosa, the person does something to try and compensate. Often is some sort of purging. Now, purging is often thought of as deliberately making oneself throw up to get rid of the food, but it can take the form of using laxatives, compulsive exercise, or simply fasting for a while after the binge. Needless to say, these are all very unhealthy behaviors and wreak havoc on somebody's health and body. And last, we come to the one that most comes to mind for most people when they think of eating disorders, and that's anorexia nervosa, which is interesting because it is actually the least prevalent among the three. Over a lifetime, just under 3% of adults would report some sort of binge eating disorder, around 1% report problems with bulimia over the lifetime, and about 0.6% report some kind of problem with anorexia over their lifetime. But what really stands out for me is that binge eating disorder and bulimia are twice as likely in females, but anorexia is three times as likely in girls and women. Another thing that jumped out when I was researching for this episode is how much overlap there is between eating disorders and other mental health conditions. If we look specifically at the overlap with chemical dependency or a substance use disorder, you'll see that about one in four people with anorexia or a binge eating disorder also reports a problem with chemical use. And with bulimia, it's even higher. About 40% of people who report a problem with bulimia also report a substance use disorder. And then seeing the overlap with overall mental health conditions, you run into over half of people with anorexia nervosa report another mental health condition as well. 
Binge eating disorder takes that up to almost 80%, and a whopping 95% of people with bulimia nervosa report having another mental health condition that they're also struggling with. So we're going to take a quick break right now and hear from one of our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to look at some of the similarities and differences around eating disorder and other addictive type behaviors, and then hear from Dr. Ingram about different approaches to their treatment. New Year's is an exciting time. Hope feels tangible and possibilities endless. If you have a loved one who has decided to embrace sobriety in 2024, help them reach their goals. Introduce them to Soberlink, the only high-tech breathalyzer system that provides tangible, immediate proof of sobriety for true peace of mind. Scheduled tests improve routine. Device portability offers autonomy. Built-in facial recognition and tamper sensors prevent cheating. And instant test results help foster accountability and trust. Help your loved one commit to reinvention this year. Visit www.soberlink.com family to learn more and receive a $50 off device promo code to share with someone you want to see succeed. Welcome back. All right, let's look at some of those similarities between known models of addiction and eating disorder and some differences that come up. And of course, the first thing that they really have in common is that they initially start out as rewarding behaviors. As I said to many of my clients who struggle around addiction and compulsion, these things don't start out as a problem. They start out as a solution. And what is it that they're solving? Usually it's some form of emotional distress. Regardless of how the person's life looks from the outside, it doesn't feel good on the inside. And these behaviors present a potential solution. They may make the feelings go away or promise that things will get better in the future if you just keep doing what you're doing. For instance, with chemical addiction, you might see somebody taking a drug because it helps them get away from a feeling or towards a feeling. Similarly, the most obvious analogous eating disorder is a binge eating disorder. And in that case, eating that much food can act as a sedative and just feel like, ah, I'm going to be okay. Anorexia, on the other hand, is a little more subtle because the rewards are off in the future. I'm going to be thinner. I'm going to lose weight. But it offers an immediate reward by giving control. I may not be able to control much of my life, but I can control how much I eat. And then there's the fact that many people with anorexia nervosa also have a distorted sense of self, a distorted body image. They think that they're overweight, and so restricting their food gives the illusion that they are addressing that problem, something which feels rewarding within itself. And unknown to anyone from the outside, they may be addressing deep shame messages about themselves, and that restricting food is somehow a solution to this. And while the behaviors may look dramatically different, the fact is that with a binge eating disorder or bulimia nervosa, it may be that the person is also dealing with deep shame, which only gets exacerbated by the overeating. So when they binge eat, they feel really bad about it, and they may either eat more to try and solve that problem, or in the case of bulimia nervosa, they may engage in some of the purging behaviors in an attempt to not only balance out physically, but try and rebalance the scales psychologically. And as you can probably imagine, It never really works out. Instead, the scales just swing wildly back and forth, and the person ends up stuck in this cycle. Unfortunately, this is one of the great commonalities that we see between eating disorders and other forms of addictive or compulsive behavior, which is that because they start out rewarding and also because they are often started at young ages, this pathway becomes very strong in the brain, and pretty soon all it takes is a small memory cue and the person might be sent back into their old behavior. And sometimes that memory cue is in fact something internal, as mentioned before, it could be a shame message or a piece of negative self-talk, or just something they see or think they see when they look in the mirror. And as it turns out, 
the kind of neural pathways and connections that we forge in adolescence are some of the strongest we'll make in our entire lives. And most eating disorders start during adolescence, which we have to remember can begin as early as 8 to 10 years old and doesn't fully wrap up until people are somewhere between 24 and 26 years old. And so it's no coincidence at all that this is the age range which most people who start into addictive or compulsive behaviors begin that pattern. Eating disorders are no different. The median age for bulimia or anorexia nervosa is around 16 years old, and for binge eating disorder, it's about 21, right smack in the middle of adolescence. And because this is an age where we are forming strong connections that we'll keep for the rest of our lives, and because of the particular brain chemicals and parts of our brain that are involved in this, what often happens is that the adolescent brain mistakes the behavior for survival. It starts thinking that this is something that you need to be okay, and it's hard to break that connection. As a result, just like with other addictive behaviors, people with eating disorders can start becoming dishonest about their behavior. They can become sneaky. They can start trying to hide from people or deceive the people around them and even try and fool themselves about the effects of what's happening. And in doing so, they start taking more and more risks to protect the behavior, not just from others, but also often trying to push the adverse effects out of their own mind so that they can't stop themselves from what they might otherwise recognize is very unhealthy behavior. And one big factor that we have to look at with eating disorders, especially binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa, is a factor that is not present for a lot of other addictions, and that's simply that people need to eat to survive. In other words, if somebody binges on cocaine or alcohol, the obvious solution is stop doing cocaine and alcohol, because many people who are addicted recognize that whether it's gambling or smoking pot, once they start, it's really hard to stop. While many people with eating disorders recognize the same sort of thing, once they start the behavior, it's very difficult to stop that train from rolling, and yet they have no choice but engage in it at least somewhat. Even restricting food, while not considered generally healthy, is something that all of us have to do a little bit. We can't just eat and eat and eat. And people with a binge eating disorder, or bulimia nervosa, obviously recognize the same sort of thing. Once they start eating, it may be very hard to stop, and yet they have no choice except to eat something. So as many people in food recovery programs have recognized, they kind of say you have to take the tiger out of the cage three times a day. In other words, there's no way to live your life without confronting your food issues. And this is why, just like so many addictions, eating disorders also require what may be initial intense treatment and then ongoing, possibly lifetime support. Which begs the question, if they have so much in common, why have eating disorders and other addictive behaviors been treated so differently? Well, partly, that's just history. It's not until relatively recently that it's been commonly understood how much these things have in common, and therefore the treatment for them just grew up separately. Kind of like different peoples in different areas of the world, not having much contact with each other, developed different languages and cultures. In the same way, eating disorder treatment and addiction treatment each developed their own culture. And one of the biggest influences on that was the development of 12-step recovery to deal with problems with alcohol. And there's two main reasons for this. One is that suddenly there was an effective way to deal with things. It may not be for everybody, but it worked for enough people that medical practitioners, therapists, psychiatrists, and even judges who dealt with these sorts of cases all took notice, and many started recommending 12-step recovery as being the way to go. But this was also profoundly affected by another big factor, which is that 12-step recovery itself has a core tenet of carrying the message to the next person who's still suffering. And this has inspired a lot of people who got sober through 12-step recovery to open up treatment centers themselves. And thus, an awful lot of treatment centers, at least in the United States, are run by people who themselves got sober using 12-step recovery. And since it worked for them, it's what they pass on to the next person who comes in the door. 
This is so true that it's difficult to find any reputable treatment center that doesn't have some aspect of 12-step recovery involved. There are always other things that are being offered as well, such as education, medical care, etc. But you'd be hard-pressed to find any place where the clients aren't at least introduced to 12-step recovery, and often it's a central theme through the entire treatment. And even the most advanced and successful treatment centers, such as Winbow Wellness Ranch, where I work, that offer an array of treatment modalities and different recovery fellowships, so not just 12-step, but also smart recovery, are very clear that these recovery fellowships are a central part, a vital and life-saving part of the recovery process. And this is because we've seen through professional and personal experience, as well as scientific literature, that recovery fellowships can make all the difference for someone. In fact, someone involved in recovery fellowships is twice as likely to stay sober as someone who isn't. But here's the thing. In eating disorder treatment, nothing like this really happened. There are recovery fellowships for eating disorders, and we'll talk about those more a little bit later in this episode. But the reality is, is that most practitioners are not people who went through those things themselves, so they're not the ones who opened the treatment centers. And this all by itself made a big difference in just the mindset and how people go about treating eating disorders. It also doesn't help that historically there's been a different and perhaps much greater stigma around drug use than there has been around eating disorders. Not that there isn't social stigma around eating disorders, and especially things like binge eating disorder, but it's not quite the same thing as the way people view those who drink uncontrollably or use heroin or something like that. And because of this, some people may be resistant to seeing the similarities, including some professionals, and so suggestions that they should be approached and treated in similar manners may get some pushback. And the reality is, there is no one treatment approach that is perfect for everybody. And this seems like a great time to bring Dr. Heather Ingram back into the conversation to look at the variety of opinions and what she has to say about people having just these varied ideas of how these conditions should be treated. Here she is. I think what works for people is going to differ whether that's the person in recovery or whether that's the treatment provider. I don't think that if people have different approaches, that means they're not going to be able to both be effective. So in my clinic, for instance, there's therapists who have all different theoretical orientations and approaches, EMDR, emotion-focused therapy, CBT, DBT. And I believe and see on a regular basis that each of those has its merits. Same thing is true with treatment of addictive behaviors, regardless of which one we're talking about. I think different approaches can have value. And I've seen that with eating disorder treatment in particular. There's some pretty strong beliefs on how to treat eating disorders. There's some camps that believe that the treatment should be more all or nothing approach, uh, more treating eating disorders in a similar capacity to other forms of addictive behaviors like alcohol or drug addiction with a step program, something like OA for instance. There's other people that believe maybe something more moderate or uh, finding a balance between eating trigger foods even though they're trigger foods, you can eat them, for instance. Uh, some people believe in more of a model like that. I don't think either one is wrong. I think both can be effective. So I think there's all different ways to treat eating disorders. And yes, I personally see eating disorders as an, another form of addictive behaviors like alcohol and drug addiction. 
And that's a good place to take a break and hear from one of our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll look at what are some things that can be done, whether you're someone who's going through some of this yourself, or if you have a loved one who might be struggling with these conditions. Among our sponsors, the most important one is you. We are so grateful for your support in our mission to help people with addiction and their families find recovery. Here are some ways you can help. I have a website at caseyauthor.com where you can find all the various ways I'm working to spread a message of hope for anyone struggling with addiction and anyone who loves them. There you can find videos, interviews I've given on other people's podcasts, information on my books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, and my newest book, Mommy's Getting Sober, a children's book that also includes a guide for caregivers on how to talk to kids about addiction. All three are available on Amazon and other retailers as both paperback and ebook. If you have read them, please tell a friend or anyone you think might be helped by their message. There's also a link to help support us on Patreon.com. Your subscriptions help make all this possible. If you'd like to become a subscriber, visit Patreon.com and look up Addiction and the Family. Thanks again. We couldn't do this without you. Welcome back. All right, let's look at what you can do if you or a loved one seems to be struggling with an eating disorder, whether it's occurring by itself or seems to be co-occurring with another addictive behavior, such as chemical use. Well, just like with people who overuse alcohol or some other drug, one of the first places that people can turn is to recovery fellowships. Now we know that recovery fellowships in general double people's chances of success. They're also free. They're all over the place. And thanks to internet and telephone meetings, you can find a meeting almost any time, day or night, and join a truly international web of support. It's a pretty amazing thing. And it's worth noting that not only are family members welcome at many of these meetings, but some family members have started meetings just for themselves and other family members to get support. So where can you find these meetings? Well, the largest and most well-known of them is Overeaters Anonymous. And despite the name, it is open to people with any sort of eating disorder. So there are some people who have anorexia, for instance, or bulimia, who go to Overeaters Anonymous meetings. An alternative to this would be Eating Disorders Anonymous, which, as the name implies, is focused specifically on eating disorders. And while it has a similar 12-step approach, some people just find it a more comfortable fit, especially those with anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa. And for those who do not want a 12-step approach, you might check out Smart Recovery. One great thing about the Smart Recovery approach is that the meetings are open to anybody with any sort of addictive or compulsive or non-adaptive, as they'd say, behavior. In fact, if you look on the Smart Recovery website and search under eating disorders, you'll find that they have a page that is dedicated specifically to eating disorders. It includes information on each of the major eating disorders and how the Smart Recovery approach can help. In fact, the easiest way to find information on any of these groups is probably through the internet. For Overeaters Anonymous, you can look up oa.org. Eating Disorders Anonymous is at eatingdisordersanonymous.org. And SMART can be found at smartrecovery.org. Or you can just type the name of any one of those fellowships into your search bar and it'll probably come right up. Now, for those that want more individualized help or maybe are too embarrassed to go to a group, the obvious step would be individualized therapy. And I should point out that individual therapy actually goes great with 12-step recovery or smart recovery, and they can really benefit each other. But how do you know which therapist to see? Well, to answer that question, we'll turn again to our interview with Dr. Heather Ingram. With eating disorders, just like other forms of addictive behavior, I think it's incredibly important to find someone with experience. 
oftentimes people struggling may not ask the questions of the providers. I think if you think about the wave of thought with medicine and how in medicine oftentimes we hear this phrase, we are our own best advocates and we should be advocating for ourselves in the medical system. The same is true in the mental health system. So interviewing the therapist, do you have experience with working with anyone with eating disorder behaviors? What type of eating disorder behaviors have you had experience? Can you share a little bit about the experience that you have with working with this population or diagnosing an eating disorder? Um, Those are appropriate and actually great questions for people to ask therapists in order to make sure that they are getting the best fit. If you have cardiac issues, for instance, and you go to a primary care doctor as your only provider, you might hear the feedback, hey, you should probably go to someone who specializes in cardiac issues. Well, the same is true if you think you have an eating disorder or if someone you love, you are concerned that they have an eating disorder. Because if you just go to a general therapist or someone who does not have that specialty, they might not notice it and they might not know how to treat it. And the problem with that is that's less effective care. Another question would be, where do I seek additional support? What would your recommendations be? What are you diagnosing me with or my child with? These are some basic informational questions that are incredibly important for one's care. For instance, the reason I say that is you want to know what the diagnosis is in order to be able to provide your loved one or yourself the best care. Asking what are my support options or what options are available to me. That's important for you to get the wraparound services that you may need. Asking questions, finding someone who has that background, that's not easy to do, but calling around, it is possible. Great guidance. I should also mention that if you're in the state of Texas, I would probably make my first call to Dr. Ingram's practice at InMindOut Emotional Wellness Center, which can be found at InMindOut.com. But what do we do if things are getting out of hand with either the eating disorder, chemical dependency, or both at the same time to the point where somebody needs to go for inpatient treatment? Well, first off, I should point out that inpatient treatment for eating disorders is much less common than it is for chemical dependency issues, but you can find it. The thing you'll run into, though, is that if your loved one is struggling with both issues at the same time, it's incredibly rare to find a facility where they can go inpatient that deals with both as primary issues. So much so that as of this recording, I couldn't find anyone that directly says that they do. And just a few friend of a friend stories, like another professional saying, hey, you know what? I've heard of a place that does this. Let me see if I can find a name. But as of this recording, no one's actually given me a name of a facility. Luckily, that doesn't mean that things are hopeless. It just means that you may have to decide one direction or the other to go in first. Some people would say you have to deal with the alligator that's closest to the boat, knowing full well that the other one's there. And that means that you got to be really honest with your providers about what's really going on in your life. Because sometimes, for instance, people might go into chemical dependency treatment and decide that they're going to try to hide their eating disorder or protect it or even keep it going at the treatment center. Needless to say, this is a terrible idea. A much better idea 
would be to talk to the people at the treatment center during your intake or during your first interview at the treatment center and just let them know what's really going on. That way, if necessary, they may, for instance, stabilize one condition, refer you out to a specialty program to stabilize the other condition, and then bring you back to finish treatment. We've done that a number of times at Windmill Wellness Ranch, where we've formed good working relationships with other trusted providers who deal with specialty eating disorders so we know that they can get that condition under control and get some good tools to work with it and then come back to us and complete their chemical dependency treatment while also using the tools and seeing how they can integrate. And that may speak to where some of the future of treatment may go as more professionals recognize that these things are in fact not so different and don't need to be treated as if they're two completely different worlds. So I can envision a future where treatment centers, some anyway, would be ready to say, you know what, we are ready to specialize in both and thus be able to help people who are struggling with two different versions of addictive and compulsive behavior at the same time. And of course, on a program called Addiction and the Family, it's pretty important that we talk about how the family members are doing with all of this. And that means you got to look and see where you're getting your support. That's right, just like with any other addictive or compulsive behavior, it's important for family members of someone who struggles with an eating disorder to look for support for themselves. Let's hear again from Dr. Heather Ingram on that subject. Uh, just like I was mentioning before with the oxygen mask, if parents or family members or loved ones do not, addictive behaviors can grab a hold of them too in one way or another and I'm not saying that they're going to develop an addiction but what I am saying is we are not an island and if it is someone that they care about more than likely it will affect them in some way and if they want to be the best person for their loved one the best way for them to do that is to ensure that they are taking care of themselves. We hear this all the time, right? Your parents hear this all the time. Parents gotta take care of themselves too, right? Well, it's easy to forget that when you're in the throes of it, when it feels like a crisis all of the time. And that means it's so much more important to do so. Sometimes I hear family members say, well, I'm okay. <laughs> and sometimes my response to that is, well, great. Why don't you humor me and meet with the therapist anyway and then tell me how it goes? We can talk about it after that. Usually, you know, I get a laugh, but after they get back from their first therapy session, I hear something like, you know, I appreciate you telling me that. I'm glad I did that. Right on. And that points out that one great resource for family members is going to see a therapist. And another one is that there are, in fact, family recovery fellowships. Now, some of the big ones, like Al-Anon or Smart Recovery Family and Friends, again, you're going to find mostly people talking about alcohol or other drugs. But that doesn't mean that the groups are actually closed to everyone else. Now, in Al-Anon, they will ask you to use the words alcohol or to talk in terms of alcohol. But the reality is that at a good meeting, most people are just talking about their own recovery. How can they stop worrying so much about their loved one? How can they stop trying to control their loved one? How do they find their own peace and their own sense of inner recovery so that they can, first of all, be the most supportive version for their loved ones, but also so that the whole family is not going down with the ship, as it were. 
And Smart Recovery Family and Friends meetings, just like Smart Recovery meetings, are open to anyone with any issue. So any family member should be able to go to a Smart Recovery Family and Friends meeting, which again, you can find at the Smart Recovery website, and not only talk with other people, but get some directly constructive tools to be able to deal with what's going on with your loved one. Again, not how to fix them or control them or make them get into recovery, but instead to find some good tools for yourself so that you can find peace and bring that peace into your family. And then the last thing that we want to look at in this episode is the fact that sometimes family members say, you know, I never saw this coming. I didn't recognize the signs. But sometimes family members are the ones on the sidelines saying, hey, look, there's a big problem going on. In fact, it's more than one. What can they do now, especially if their loved one doesn't want to admit it or will admit to one problem but not the other? Let's turn again to Dr. Heather Ingram. I see that a lot where a parent, for instance, might bring their child in for an eating disorder and the child may be open to the fact that they need treatment, they need support around that. And then the parent says, oh, wait, 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 are we addressing this other thing that I'm seeing? And the child may say, well, I don't have an issue with drugs. And the parent says, well, yes, 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 you're using every day. There's an issue here that we need to address. This is why it's so important for the family to get their own level of support. Because if you think about the airplane analogy, it's similar to the parent not putting their oxygen mask on and really trying to help the kids around them. And the longer that goes on, the more likely that that parent might get injured in some way. In this case, mentally and emotionally, maybe too wrapped up in the situation, maybe physically ill from the stress, maybe psychologically ill, This is why I talk about the oxygen analogy and why it is so important that they at least check in with someone. And if the therapist says, hey, you're all good, or that really nice F word, fine, I'm happy for them. At least they did that check-in. It's kind of like going and getting a physical. You're not going to know what you're going to find, but people recommend you do it right? To check in even if we think we're healthy. Wise words. So in conclusion, if you think that you or someone else you know might be struggling with an eating disorder or any addictive problem, now is the time to seek help both for the person with the addiction and for everyone they love. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about addiction to the family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictionofthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.